Matthew chapter 5. We are working our way through this uh, gospel account from the Apostle. This is an eyewitness account of one of the twelve. Levi, the tax collector. You remember Matthew? And the Lord came by his tax collecting booth there and said, follow me. And Matthew dropped everything and turned his focus to Christ and was radically saved from a life that was despised by the people there. And Matthew then in turn later in his life recounted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the movement of the Spirit, he recounted this inspired record of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're brand new to the book of Matthew, just let me remind you, and this is helpful for all of us to be reminded of, that Matthew is not a chronological book. It's, it's actually not written as a chronological study of the life of Christ. Uh, the most chronological of the gospel accounts is Luke, actually. Uh, Matthew is writing more from a thematic standpoint. He's writing because he wants to make a particular emphasis, and he uses the life of Christ from different portions and different times to plug in to make a themed approach, a theological approach, if you will, to this gospel account. So that's why at times you'll come to Matthew, and particularly in the early chapters, we come through chapter 4, we see Christ being tempted, and then we start chapter 5, and he's in Galilee. Well, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that Jesus didn't make a beeline for Galilee. After his temptation, he went to Judea. And actually, Matthew passes right over the entire Judean ministry, which is given to us in most detail in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And he heads right to Galilee because he wants to begin this gospel with a theological emphasis on the person of Christ, who he is, that's chapters 1 to 4, and why he should be trusted as the Messiah, why the Jewish people should turn and remember and look back and see that he was in fact the promised one. And then he wants to begin the teaching ministry of Christ with an emphasis on the words of the Messiah. And the focus is right here at the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And our Lord is expositing his kingdom as the king. This is his manifesto. And so Matthew starts in right away, giving us a clear look and a very specific look into the details of the life, the person, and then the work and words of Jesus Christ. And it's going to continue that way as we look at the major discourses or the major sermons that Christ preached. In fact, Matthew builds this entire account around the discourses of Christ. So we'll see a discourse, a sermon, if you will, though it wasn't a sermon, so to speak, but a sermon followed by um, acts of miracles and further validation of the words of Christ, and then a response from the people, and then we'll begin into another discourse with the same process being used by Matthew because he's writing from a theological perspective. And right here at the outset in the Sermon on the Mount, he is addressing the hearts of the multitudes that are around him as well as the disciples who would be near him on the mountain. We've made our way all the way through the Beatitudes, which... I told my wife this week, I'm afraid we're getting already too far away from the Beatitudes. They're already fleeting in our memory. And the Beatitudes are the core of this message. You can't get to where we are today without coming through verses 3 through 12. If you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be in the kingdom and your character is exposed in verses 3 through 12 as not being a citizen of the kingdom but being a counterfeit citizen then what we'll study today really has no bearing on your life as a believer as much as it should call you to repentance as a sinful and unbelieving hypocrite. You're going to see this throughout the ministry and the message of Christ. We're going to study this over and over again. Christ is particularly concerned with the Jewish people because their religious leaders had ingrained in them the idea that formal religion was enough. Formal adherence to some external standard was enough and that that would bring them into by birth and then by their activities into the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, the Messiah comes and says that is entirely false. You should have no assurance based on your external standard. You should have no assurance based on your ethnic background. But rather, 
the heart change that comes in the new covenant, a new heart that has been, the old heart has been crushed and broken, and this new heart has life. You've been dead, and now you're made alive. And here we find the character in the Beatitudes of the kingdom citizen. We moved from the character, excuse me, in the study of verses 3 through 12, into the salt and light, the effect of this kingdom character on the world around us. So not only should we be examining ourselves internally to see if, in fact, we're a part of this kingdom, but we should then be able to examine our life and its effect on others to further validate our place in the kingdom of Christ. Right? There are certain assumptions that we should have about our life and others' response to us as Christians. That's what we found in verses 13 through 16, that in fact the Christian life is not a neutral lifestyle. It is an active pursuit of righteousness, and that brings a response from the world around us. It should be expected. This should be the norm. Though we live in a culture where we have an exception to the norm in the fact that we are not persecuted for our faith from a governmental stance, this still is the reality for those who would follow and pursue Christ. They are a salt and they are a light. And that will come as their effect on the world around them. Persecution is their guarantee at the end of the Beatitudes in verses 11 and 12. And the effect then that should flow out of them is found in verses 13 through 16 that brought us then and pastor david studied with us verses 17 to 20 we've seen the character of the kingdom citizen we've seen the effect and the salt and light on the world around us and then in verses 17 to 20 we see the standard for the kingdom citizen what is the standard what is the approach what is the the basis upon which the citizen of the kingdom will be evaluated and judged. And Christ says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to establish the law of Christ himself. This is the New Testament establishment of the standard of righteousness. Okay? So our concern when we come to this portion of of the Sermon on the Mount should be all about our heart righteousness. Because there is a demand... There is a standard that is placed over us, and it is the righteousness of Christ himself. In fact, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or the end of chapter 5, rather, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells us that perfection, as God is perfect, is what is placed over us. Righteousness is paramount in the kingdom. In fact, no one will be included in the kingdom of heaven, and no one enjoys the benefit and the blessings of the kingdom of heaven apart from perfect righteousness that is the message that we're finding in the sermon on the mount jesus articulates that in verse 20 of chapter 5 when he tells them unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the pharisees they'll never enter the kingdom okay so here's a crowd of people gathered around jesus And they are a group of people who have been informed that if they keep a list of external standards, if they check off the standards that are kept by the Pharisees, then they will be a part of the kingdom. And Jesus says, not only is that not good enough, but your righteousness must far exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Those are the religious leaders of the day. They would have been the temple leaders. They would have been in the synagogues, teaching the people, reading the scriptures to the people. And yet their righteousness and their view of righteousness and their view of justification was completely flawed. God's standard was not the external rules of the Pharisees and the scribes. God's standard was a righteousness that was matched in the perfection of God himself. You say, wow, that is a crushing blow, right? That leaves us guilty, doesn't it? I mean, that leaves us standing here absolutely condemned before the standard in verses 17 to 20. You're exactly right. And what we're going to study today will condemn us again because the kingdom demands are outlined in the remainder of this chapter. There are six of them. We looked at anger, the heart of a murderer, last week, and we stood condemned. Have we murdered? I would assume most of us haven't murdered. Have we been guilty of a heart that is murderous? All of us 
have been guilty in our anger of a murderous heart before a holy, righteous God. You say, what is the response? Well, that's, that's the key question, and that's why this sermon was outlined and structured the way it was. Christ was not just talking off the top of his head. He was speaking with intent and with purpose, and it all brings us back to the first and foremost characteristic of the kingdom citizen. What is the chief characteristic of the kingdom citizen? They are poor in spirit. They are broken, bankrupt, poverty-stricken, from the inside, they see themselves for the nothingness that they are before the righteousness of God. And so the kingdom standard is fulfilled in Christ himself, and the law of Christ stands as the representation of the righteousness that is demanded for the kingdom citizen. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but all that brings us to verse 27, and we're going to study just verses 27 to 30 this morning. And we're going to address kingdom righteousness lived out. What are the demands when it pertains to adultery and lust? So read with me. In verse 27, we'll read down through verse 30. Jesus says in the same pattern that he's been using and will continue to use, you have, sir, you have heard that it was said, <clears throat> you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And in the same account, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let me ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we study this passage and ask for the Spirit's aid as I teach. Father, thank you for this privilege that we have now for these next few moments to examine a, a very specific portion of your word. We ask that you would not alleviate us in any way from the standard and the demands of the righteousness that must be present for all who would be counted in the kingdom. I pray for two specific requests for our time together now. First, that you would grip my heart and that you would use my life and my words as a channel, as just a vessel, as just a conduit for your truth to the lives and the hearts of your people. Humble me again before this text as you have done continually this week. Break my heart at the sin that is seen in my own life that I may be effective in recounting and articulating the truths that are here. And secondly, Father, I pray specifically for those who are listening, who are under the sound of your word, who are interacting with the word of the living God, the righteous judge of all who have ever lived. And I ask that you would soften their hearts. May your spirit be active in those whom he indwells. And may he give life to those who know no life. May some be rescued from their sin and their self-deception, their hypocrisy this morning. Use this text in all of our lives for these moments, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus and because of the grace that is ours at his cross. Amen. Well, this morning we are in a familiar section in this lust section, and I've been concerned all week that this portion of our Bibles becomes a hot-button portion. We like this. This is almost like the encyclopedia in our Bible, right? There are certain sections of your Bible that you can go to and you can find a whole bunch of things about a whole bunch of things. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Generally speaking, when we talk about the sermon, people know about the Beatitudes, but they also know that if you go there in Matthew 5 through 7, you can find the Lord talking about a whole lot of hot topics. And I'm concerned that we cheapen the whole of the message of the sermon when we view this as some isolated hot topic that Jesus is addressing. It is a hot topic. It's a hot topic for us this morning because we gather as a people that are inundated 
with a cultural infatuation with sexual lust. Okay, that is just reality. We live in a culture that is spiraling down further and further into sexual lust as its core, as its theme. It is a hot topic for us because it is so close to where we live. And yet it has to be taken in light of the whole of what Christ is instructing and teaching. He is laying out the demands based on the standard for those who have an effect because of the character that is theirs within their heart. If you come to this section for some good life lesson, then you are left making the same mistake that Jesus is addressing. If we leave this with some external idea that we can overcome in some external sense and live the righteousness that is demanded, then you are falling and I am falling into the very trap that had deceived the Pharisees and the scribes. Sexual lust is driving our culture. It sells every product imaginable. It becomes almost completely profitless to watch any commercial on your television because sexual lust is used to sell everything. Sexual lust provides the entertainment at entertainment events. We go to be entertained at a sporting event or we go to be entertained at a a film or a play or whatever it is, and what is the entertainment at the entertainment event? It is sexual lust. Sexual lust is accessible to us like it has never been accessible in the history of mankind. It is one click away. The deception and the false idea, the myth of privacy has never been as strong as it is today. Never have you in the history of the world been able to feel more private and more alone while lusting sexually than you can today. So all of those all of those realities that are so true for all of us, it's not a gender issue, it's across the board. Make this a vital subject for us because this represents the demands of the king for his kingdom. We have to evaluate this with our eyes wide open and our hearts laid before the word of God. Our text is not concerned this morning with any activity revolved around sexuality, but rather with a heart that is motivated, driven, and committed to sexual lust. So not unlike the the rest of the Sermon on the Mount or what we've studied to this point, Jesus is not concerned with what you do first as much as he's concerned with who you are. Because who you are will dictate what you do. And so we find ourselves in this section of Scripture looking again at another example at how the Pharisees and the scribes had boiled the law of God, they had boiled the demands of the law of God down to some external code that they could keep so that they could stand before the people and say, I stand before you in perfect justification. I have lived the law perfectly. And yet Christ says, no, not at all. You have not lived the law. You have failed the law miserably and universally. You are under the law of Christ. Your heart is corrupt, though some action may not have taken place. So I'm going to split this up into three sections for us. We're going to look at verse 27 as the mere externalism, mere externalism of the understanding of the Pharisees and the scribes and the people that were gathered there. Verse 28, we'll look at the kingdom internalism. Yes, that is not a word. I'm aware. I made it up. I had to put add to dictionary on my word processor. Okay, mere externalism, and then for parallels' sake, kingdom internalism. Okay, so the kingdom is dealing with heart adultery. And then thirdly, kingdom application. And that is a radical amputation. That is the application. So mere externalism, physical adultery, kingdom internalism, heart adultery. And then finally, kingdom application, which is radical amputation from our lives in verses 29 and 30. Okay, so verse 27 says, and Jesus begins this the same way that he has the one on anger and on murder. You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you have an old King James Version, 
you might have in there, the little phrase, you have heard it said by them of old time. That has been omitted from these most recent texts because that was a later edition. If you want to talk about that, we can. But that was a later scribal edition to make it parallel with verse 21. And so the oldest manuscripts that we have of this section don't have that phrase. That's why it's missing as I read it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment is what is addressed here in the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 18, or Exodus 20, verse 14, give us the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus doesn't uh, tack on any other phrase or standard that the Pharisees used or the scribes used in instructing the people. You'll remember back when we talked about murder and anger that the one who didn't murder was free from any condemnation. And so Jesus said, you've missed the point. It's not that you didn't kill anybody physically. It's that your heart was murdering in anger. The same is the implied definition and meaning here that Jesus addresses with his confrontation of the scribes and the Pharisees. While no additional clause is added, it is clear from the remainder of the paragraph that the Pharisees and the scribes had narrowed the law to the physical act of adultery itself. Okay? So basically, we're dealing with an external standard if you haven't committed adultery. That is, if you have not had a sexual relationship in a technical sense with a, a person who is other than your spouse, either one of you being married, someone other than your spouse, then you have kept, you have kept and fulfilled the law of God. Christ says, not so. That's not going to cut it for the kingdom. That won't, that won't make the cut. Adultery was taken so seriously in the Old Testament, and rightly so. In fact, adultery was punishable by death under God's rulership in the theocracy over Israel. You can find that in Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22:22. So much so that in John 8, when the woman came and was going to be stoned for her adultery, they are not condemned for their judgment of her adultery, but rather based on their heart hypocrisy in coming to judge this woman. Furthermore, the New Testament makes it very clear that God is still just as concerned about adultery and fornication as he ever has been, because he is unchanging. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 speaks to this. Galatians 5:19-21 is a stark contrast to our world's perception of adultery, the soap opera world in which we live where adultery is just a common practice. Here's what Galatians chapter 5 says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, that's the broad term, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let me point out at the outset that because Christ takes us to the heart, he in no way negates the standard on the activity as well, right? So he did not condone murder by taking us to the heart of the murder. He only deepened our understanding of the demands of the law of this kingdom. Likewise, in our portion today, he in no way negates the standard and the ideal of the righteousness of God against adultery, but he takes us deeper by addressing the heart that stands behind any act of adultery and the heart that is present even when the act of adultery is not present. So they had heard it said, they had had the command boiled down to some physical activity, and yet Christ is about to tell them that that will not make the cut. The problem was not with the attention to the seriousness of adultery as a sinful behavior, but rather the ignoring of the sinful heart behind the sinful behavior. Okay? It's always about the heart in the kingdom. There's a little saying that I've memorized over the years. Um, 
man who's very influential in my life, early in my Christian life. Ken Collier gave us this quote, and I've kept it memorized. You say what you say, and you do what you do, because you think what you think. And you think what you think, because you believe what you believe about God, about yourself, and about His Word. You say what you say, and you do what you do. Because you think what you think, and your thinking is derived directly from your heart and what you believe. Okay? Jesus' point, his emphasis, is that the activity itself doesn't go deep enough. It is the heart, it is the mind, it is the eye, it is the hand, it is every part of the being that is involved in this sinful activity of adultery, heart adultery, which is identified as sexual lust which is the prevailing theme of our culture. So, the bottom line is that verse 27 is mere externalism. It's just the outside. It's not dealing with the inside. It's a whitewashed tomb. Looks pretty on the outside. It's full of dead men's bones on the inside. External purity just will not do in the kingdom. The demands of righteousness on the kingdom citizen go much deeper than the outside layer. And that brings us to the kingdom internalism in verse 28. But I say to you, and this is an emphatic I again, Jesus here is clearly stating that he speaks authoritatively in delivering what he's about to deliver. I say to you, in contrast to what you've heard, I authoritatively say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Though Moses had given the Old Testament law, the Pharisees and scribes had made sure the external requirement was kept, it was not going to be good enough for the kingdom of heaven. Because the law given in the Old Testament was to completely crush a sinner under the weight of his sin, And any mere externalism as the keeping of that law had to be done away with as sheer hypocrisy in the kingdom of heaven. There is a heart reality behind the sinful behavior of adultery that was forbidden by the law. And that is what Jesus points us to in verse 28. Now just some observations from verse 28 to help us examine what's here, though it is quite clear from our translation Adulterous activity is still forbidden. We've established that. But adulterous thinking and looking is equally forbidden and is equally guilty before God. Adulterous looking leads to a heart adultery that will undermine the very righteousness of the kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is made up of those who are freed from a heart of adultery just as they are freed from a heart of murder. The standard has not been alleviated. It has only been pressed down further. It has only dug deeper into who we are before the righteous standard of the law of Christ. Any of the above adulterous activity will constitute guilt in the kingdom. And we'll see in verses 29 and 30 that guilt in this aspect leads to where it leads to one end it leads to hell so we're not playing games this isn't a hot topic issue that jesus is just throwing out some clever commands or some advice for you as a man or a woman this morning he's not giving advice he's laying down a standard that must be kept or none will be entered into the kingdom of heaven Jesus is not speaking, obviously, I trust you understand this, he is not speaking to the pure desire for sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage. Right? Thankfully, our Bibles also include the Song of Solomon, which I trust your hermeneutic has allowed you to understand fully. It should make you blush when you read the Song of Solomon, because God fully endorses the pages of Scripture the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. 
Proverbs chapter 5 speaks to this issue. In fact, it's probably good for us to read some of these portions. Proverbs chapter 5, speaking directly to the issue of adultery. Make sure that we understand that adultery is the target, and the heart of adultery is the target, not the pure relationship of marriage. Verse 7 says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 5. Keep your way far from her, that is the strange woman, and do not go near the door of her house, or don't let your mouth click on her sight, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, that is, your life is wasted, and at the end of your life you groan, and when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Now, here's the contrast. Verse 15, extolling us to the greatness of the marriage relationship. Drink water from your own cistern. This is poetic language. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Throughout Scripture, whether it be in Proverbs 5, whether it be in the Song of Solomon, whether it even be in Job chapter 31, where Job speaks of the covenant he has made with his eyes in purity to not look on young women other than his wife. Jesus and the scriptures are clear that the marriage bed is undefiled. Hebrews 13.4 And yet adultery and sexual relationships outside of marriage are strictly forbidden. Furthermore, Jesus is not forbidding the looking or seeing of a woman or man who is attractive. This is not some physical activity that now we can curtail by putting blinders on our eyes. And yet we'll speak to our eyes in just a moment. We might look, we might see, it might pass before us, but everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that is the second, the third, the long gaze for the intent of evil desires to play out in our minds what we are afraid to play out with our bodies by looking and gazing. This is the lustful intent That is forbidden within the kingdom. Jesus is not restricting this institution or this instruction rather to men exclusively. And I I don't want to just focus on men. Nor to adultery exclusively but rather to all sexual sin and all the people who are engaged in all the aspects of anything outside of. Any deviation from what he has ordained, what he has created and what he finds joy in allowing us to find joy in. So ladies... Just because the pronouns don't put the pressure on you, understand that you as a kingdom citizen fall underneath the exact same character, the same effect, the same standard, and the same demands. This is not gender specific. This is the depth of kingdom internalism because it addresses heart adultery. Jesus' point is that any and all sexual sinful behavior flows from a sexually sinful heart that is guilty before God. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. You say, if everyone who has ever done this, if everyone who has coveted after another person who is not their spouse if lust has taken place and that everyone is guilty, then who could ever stand before these demands, these requirements, and not be condemned? And the answer is no one. None of us. 
And yet the demand of the kingdom is for perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Not just a keeping from a physical act of adultery, but a purity from within that removes the lustful intent of looking and gazing and thinking upon another who is not our spouse. Now there are a couple things for us to address, and one is just a secondary application. One of the commentators brought this up, and I thought it was helpful to mention women in modesty is really the flip side of this same coin. And I'm treading now where angels fear to trod. I'm aware of that. And yet, ladies, I would just challenge you as a shepherd that you need to take stock of clothing and what you wear so that you are not a part of this same problem. John Stott says, and it's helpful to have someone else say it, John Stott says, and I read, okay? It is one thing to make yourself attractive, and we would encourage that, okay? It is one thing to make yourself attractive. It is another to make yourself deliberately seductive. And then catch this last line. You girls know the difference, and so do we. Everything that is involved in our culture that deals with lustful intent and sexual lust, all of it needs to be brought to the table when we examine our lives before the standard of the kingdom. Where am I falling short? Where have I cut myself a little slack? Where have I justified my own activities as being good enough when the examination of the law of Christ is on my heart? Each and every one of us, We must examine our lives before these demands. Not a mere externalism, but a kingdom internalism. This must be our understanding. That brings us finally then to the kingdom application. And this is just an amazing section here in verse 29 and 30. And Jesus uses this again and again. This must have been a favorite uh, illustration for him, a phrase that he would use. He brings it back again later in the book of Matthew. In chapter 18, actually, he uses the same same exact illustration to talk about temptation, including the foot in there in Matthew 18. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin or causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. We come to verses 29 and 30, and we should be asking ourselves, so what now is to be my response to the standard of the kingdom? As one who is a kingdom citizen, what is my response to be to seeing this for what it is, for seeing my heart, for the sinful heart that it is, and my desire and my hunger and my desperation of thirst in verse 6 of chapter 5 is for this righteousness. I want it. I want to see it in my life. So what should my response be? Well, our response is outlined for us here as a radical amputation, not a literal amputation. I'm sure that poor Origen in the third century would have liked someone to sit down and think through this a little more deeply with him as he took it upon himself to start lopping off body parts to deal with the lust of his heart. Not a literal demand for physical amputation. That would undermine the very theme of what Jesus is saying, right? If we could just deal with the externals and it would fix the problem, that would undermine the entire issue. Rather, Jesus is saying if there is is an activity in your life, if there is an activity of your body, if your hand does something, if your feet take you somewhere, if your eyes look on something that causes you to sin, that is the stumbling block, Stop it. Stop. This was so convicting this week. Because we don't stop. In fact, we come back again and again and again and again until it's a habit and our conscience is seared and we no longer see our sin for what it is and we suddenly have justified ourselves based on some external activity. I've never committed adultery with another woman, therefore I'm okay. Jesus says, not in the kingdom. Not in the kingdom. You stop. You cut it off. You gouge it out. You stop the activity that is causing you to sin. Mortification is the demand for the kingdom citizen. 
kill it. Dig it out by the root. Go after it with everything you have. This is the radical kingdom application. Mortification of sin will include the maiming of our lives as the means by which sin is entering us and into the life of our lives as kingdom citizens. Look at Colossians chapter 3 as a counter passage, just a helpful passage to reiterate the same truth from the Apostle Paul's pen. Colossians chapter 3. Maybe you know this section is a crucial sanctification portion of your Bible. The putting off and the putting on of the Christian life. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, or put off, kill, mortify, slaughter what is earthly in you, namely sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is the lusting after what is not yours. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put them all away, verse 8 says. Put them to death. Cut them off. Be done with your activities and your vision that is causing you to sin. Why? Why? Why is it that that Jesus here says that if your eye is the problem, don't look. Act as if you've gouged out your eyes. You have no ability. Cut the activity off. If it's your hand and whatever it is doing, get rid of it. Be radical. Because it is better for you, verse 29 and 30, both say it's better for you to go into the kingdom, to go into heaven, maimed, chopped up, and to spend a life in eternity before the presence of God in the kingdom of everlasting joy. It's better to go in maimed than it is to have all of it that the world offers you, to have every pleasure that you can have, to give yourself entirely to yourself, and to spend your eternity in separation and in torment in hell. The logic is, is inescapable. I'm going to lay you out two options, Jesus says. You've got two. I want you to pick which one you want. You can cut off your hand, and you can go to heaven, because you have taken radical steps to remove the cause of sin. Or you can keep your hand... You can live your life in the way you think will best please you. You can live in your temporary sin and you'll spend an eternity with your hand in hell. It's better. Maimed but in the heaven or whole but in the hell for eternity. Check this. Those who disregard sin and sinful behavior are going to an eternal hell. The kingdom citizen does not respond to what they see as sinful behavior the way those who have never been brought into the kingdom respond to sin. If you're to point out, or if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never been redeemed, you've never been rescued from the penalty of your sin, you've never been given a brand new heart that is granted with his nature, his righteousness has never covered your sin, then when you see your sin for what it is and you see the sinful adultery of your heart this morning, you will not respond with a desperation of hunger and thirst for righteousness that would maim your own life for the sake of purity. But the kingdom citizen, oh no, when they see their sin for what it is and when they see the offense that it is to their king, they take all the radical steps to apply his standard and his demands to their life. This is not legalism. Legalism is to think that somehow your standard earned righteousness with God. Again, it will never be a physical activity. It will be a heart that is transformed. And the response will be a desire to keep the heart as pure as I can. Therefore, I will cut off from my heart every access to sinful behavior that is a part of my existence. And this will vary as many as the faces in the room. We have become so lazy as Christians. We have become so complacent in our pursuit of holiness. We leave the city unguarded every night. The gates are wide open. 
And yet here we find the radical kingdom application, a mortification of sin. Cultural amputation is a must for those who are kingdom citizens, living not for here and now, but for eternity. Okay, this is an eternal perspective, and it goes right along with what you've been rescued to. By way of application, just understand what this implies for us as God's people. There will be activities, there will be events, particularly in our culture, that we will not get to be a part of. And there's just things that we're not going to be able to be a part of. Because they are opportunities, they are causes for us to sin. It's cultural amputation in one sense because there will be with us a stigma of those people don't do certain activities. And you know that the world loves to tell you what you don't do. We don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't run with those who do. Or dance or whatever your, your favorite socials are. And yet the reality is for the kingdom, as silly as that is, and as much as that is a degrading of what we are as a people of God, and I trust that's not who you are to those who know you as a Christian. As much as that is silly and set aside, there is a reality that for us to take sin seriously, we will sacrifice certain activities, certain behaviors that are commonplace in our culture. And we will be seen as foolish for that. You didn't see this movie? Are you kidding? Why? Well, we took the time to see what was in the movie, and that movie would have been a cause to sin for us. Therefore, we didn't go see it. We cut, it, uh, we cut off our feet to the movie. You've got to check out this video. You've got to listen to this song. You've got to see this television program. You've got to read this book. You've got to have this cultural magazine. No, you don't. You don't. Because you take seriously the demands of the kingdom. It's not about adultery. It's about heart adultery. It's about the lust and the desire for sexual sin that is within me. And I choose to mortify it because I am a new creation in Christ. Hendrickson says, Sin, being a very destructive force, must not be pampered. must be put to death. Temptation should be flung aside immediately and decisively. Dilly-dallying is deadly. Halfway measures work havoc. The surgery must be radical. Right at this very moment, without any vacillation, the obscene book must be burned. The scandalous picture destroyed. The soul-destroying film condemned. The sinister yet very intimate social tie broken. And the baneful habit discarded. In the struggle against sin, the believer must fight hard. Shadow boxing will never do. This is the kingdom standard from our Lord Jesus Christ as it pertains to the heart of adultery. If your right eye causes you to sin, causes you to sin is an interesting word. It's actually the little trigger on a snare. It's the little branch that when you hit it, pop, the snare happens and you're stuck. The little rabbit's there doing its deal and becomes supper. If any activity, if your eye and your eye gate, and your vision, if your hand, or your feet, or whatever it is, is the snare that sets the trap, and you fall into sin, you walk into sin, then you must cut it off. This is the standard. Not a mere externalism, but a kingdom internalism that is matched by a kingdom radical application. So what? Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us this morning? Sitting before this text, we must find ourselves, and I trust you do, guilty before the holy judge of heaven for our adulterous hearts and our sexual impurity and lusts. Whether we have acted out and lived out that sinful behavior that is within us or not, we must stand guilty by the standard of the law of Christ. Furthermore, we need to understand that we're only allowed to enter the kingdom on the basis of perfection in righteousness. And that leaves us with a very dire situation. I'm a sinner, I am condemned, and righteousness in perfection is the only standard that must be kept for the kingdom. Therefore, I am in a difficult spot. Well, 
if the grace of God is at work in you this morning, and if you are a member of the kingdom, you're brought back to the same place you were brought when the Lord crushed you with his grace, because you're brought back to the definition of verse 3. You're brought back to the poverty in spirit. You're brought back to the awareness that there is nothing good within you. You're brought back to the end of yourself, which is the beginning of the grace of God. For it is the humility that will receive grace. The response to seeing our sin for what it is must be spiritual bankruptcy that turns in faith to the very king who is speaking to us this morning. Our sin does demand a punishment. It's either going to be fulfilled in our eternal hell or by faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. Someone has to pay for our adulterous and lustful hearts. Someone must pay the ultimate penalty. Death is the only penalty that will suffice. Lloyd-Jones great commentator, great pastor in England, and really the watershed uh, commentator on the Sermon on the Mount, said this, I thank God. Here's the conclusion, the last paragraph of his comments on this section. I thank God that I have a gospel which tells me that another who is spotless and pure and utterly holy has taken my sin and guilt upon himself. I'm washed in his precious blood, He's given me his own nature. When I realized I needed a new heart, I found, thank God, that he had come to give it me, and he has given it to me. Isn't that our cry this morning? We stand condemned before the standards of the kingdom, the demands of the kingdom, and we have a Christ who has lived in perfect righteousness and has died the death that we deserve so that in faith we might receive that righteousness, a new heart, his nature, a desire and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and the grace we need to live in obedience to the commands of Scripture. Will we be perfect? No. Not until we're glorified, not before we see Him as He is, not until we stand before Him. And yet progressively, step by step by step, the work of God in His people is the progressive development of holiness. So that more and more and more our sinful, corrupt lives start to morph into the very character and the image of Christ himself. This is the desire that God has in saving you. Why? So that you might be a trophy. You might be a trophy on his shelf of grace. The great God who created us. The holy God who judges us might have trophies of grace through the sanctification, the progressive holiness of sinful people. This is the law of Christ, the law of the kingdom, and it will be either your delight or it will be your damnation.